Good morning, brethren and friends. We're leaving the rather sad and, and frustrating account of David and Bathsheba representing David's low, and we're going to ascend now to a high. And while our technicians sort this out, we're going to be considering the account of Mephibosheth. David wants to show a kindness. I want you all to say Mephibosheth quickly three times. <laughs> what I'm struggling with. This is, this is an interesting and a very lovely little account injected here for our edification, for a look into David's heart, for he has an inherent personality quality of kindness. And it could have just as easily have been stated in a one-liner and David showed a kindness to Mephibosheth, and that could have been the end of it. But instead, we have a whole chapter devoted to this story, and the moral of this story is it's a glimpse into the inherent kindness of Yahweh that he shows and desires to show to all of us lame brethren through his son Jesus. Now, the account of Mephibosheth, the lame son of Jonathan, is indeed a lovely and encouraging scene. It helps us, and it comes a long way to helping us appreciate the man after God's own heart. Saul, you recall at this juncture, was trapped on Mount Gilboa with his son Jonathan uh, in the battle with the Philistines. And he was killed there the previous night. He had sought counsel from the witch of Endor rather than going to Yahweh. But by this time, God had forsaken him and cast him off. Have any of you been to Mount Gilboa, which is at the dig Bet-Sheen? Well, Bet-Sheen is a tell that has been nicely excavated. It's a city south of the Lake of Galilee, <clears throat> and it's nicely excavated, and you can see the pillars and the little Colosseum and everything there. But not 50 yards away is the Mount of Gilboa, which is a big rounded hill, maybe 100 feet high, and it looks like the end of a loaf of bread, and that's where Saul's body was hung, and it was... He was decapitated, you recall, and his head and armor were taken and displayed in Philistine cities. But he and Jonathan and his remaining men got themselves cornered on that cornice, and they were subsequently killed. And you could see the wall. It was very obvious. That's where, no doubt, his remains were displayed. Now, little Mephibosheth was five years old at this time. And as the Philistines closed in, his nurse 
scooped him up, apparently, and was making a hasty exit, and she apparently dropped him or fell on him and probably broke both legs. And at that time, of course, things wouldn't heal properly because of the, because of the times. David, at this point, is now enjoying a respite in his, in his palace, enjoying a respite from war, because this was past history, of course. And uh, he is at a place where he wants to show a kindness. Something comes into his heart. He wants to show a kindness. There's nothing wrong with practicing magnanimous random acts of kindness, is there? There used to be bumper stickers that we'd see like that. Now, in First Samuel, or Second Samuel, chapter nine, then, and David said, "Is there yet any who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake?" So, David wants to show a kindness for Jonathan's sake, and this is an outgrowth of his love of Jonathan, who is now dead and of the covenant that they had made together in that Jonathan swore his allegiance to David. David swore his allegiance to Jonathan and that he would not persecute Jonathan's family when he came into his kingship. Jonathan was clued in and totally aligned with David, even though David at that time was a fugitive from Jonathan's father. Now, this kindness that David wanted to show had no strings attached, no ulterior motives. His actions were born out of love and respect for Jonathan. So David inquired around, and he inquired of Ziba, one of Saul's old servants, and Ziba helped David locate Mephibosheth the crippled son then of Jonathan. David restored him to all the lands of Saul and invited him to eat at his table any time he desired. And this, of course, would be a great honor for a king of that day to do such a thing. In this act, David types the kindness of both Yahweh and his son who had not yet returned to demonstrate these acts. We now enjoy... Christ's kindness through the Spirit, through his word of truth, but we can only imagine what will burst forth from the Temple Mount, the great administrative establishment that will be built there, and the blossoming forth in the kingdom age as it is promised us. So the chapter opens up. Is there yet any who is left in the house of Saul? The answer was no. The lesson was that sin had completely eradicated this line or would soon eradicate it in uh, an upcoming scenario with the Gibeonites. But the principle that we're seeing here is that sin had eradicated the line of Saul. 
except for this pathetic, lame boy. Now, Psalm 37, David records the demise and the fall of the great. Immediately, we're thinking he's recording about Saul. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yet I sought him, but could, he could not be found. So again in verse 1, David inquires, is there anyone? And that's what we do today, don't we? As we look out there at humanity and we wonder if our, if our pamphlets, if our outreach programs, uh, is it doing any good, especially in this last day? Is there anyone? Out of every age, we have significant illustrations of the fact that the great and rich and famous fall hard. Men rise to greatness and fame and fortune, power and positions, only to lose it and to sink to the bottom in society. Look what we have immediately in our time frame. We have John Edwards. We have... Uh, Sandusky of Penn State. We have O.J. Simpson. We have Tiger Woods. All these are high-profile people. But think of people that we all know. Is there anyone as a warning of those lost souls who have rebelled against God? The house of fall had fallen into obscurity and run and ruined because of sin. David never forgot the covenant then that he had made with Jonathan over 20 years ago through their lasting friendship. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 to 4, if you wish. Now, this chapter is all about unfeigned kindness, and it is meant to portray the kindness of Yahweh through Christ. Kindness is rendered the full flow of natural affection. And Guinness adds, the grace, favor, mercy of God towards men. And we've already considered this topic of, of grace uh, and favor. The specific kindness which David wanted to show any of the house of Saul was nothing less than the kindness of God. Now, apart from Jonathan, Mephibosheth would not have received this great kindness from David, not on his own. Like Saul's house, there is absolutely nothing in the sinner's life that makes him worthy of salvation as the antitype of Mephibosheth. He was lame in both feet. He was doubly lame, and that applies to us as well when we are aliens outside the commonwealth of Israel and covenant. But because of the merit of another, that being Christ, we have a hope of salvation. Thus we have these references. God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's in Ephesians 4. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. 1 John 2, verse 12. So this is a story 
It's a, it's a lovely little story of the mediatory work of Christ in the gospel. Now, we are told there is one God, one mediator between God and man, and that man is Christ Jesus. Like David, Christ has a close relationship with both the one who can show the kindness, being Yahweh, unto salvation, and the one who needs the kindness of salvation. That's us in the type of Mephibosheth. Now lastly, if Jonathan could inspire David to such noble deeds uh, as are recorded in 2 Samuel 9, how much more should Jesus inspire us to noble deeds as well? So once more from Ephesians 4.32, we are reminded to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So what, lesson, what lessons then do we extract in the personage of this lame Mephibosheth? He was from an alienated lineage as the house of Saul was, not in favor at that time. It was, it was at odds with the house of David. This is exactly the situation of all sinners. The Apostle Paul stated in several places having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind for wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Colossians 1 verse 21. So the rejection of King Saul was made in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23 and 26. You're familiar with that. King Saul offered sacrifice inappropriately, impatiently waiting for Samuel. And he also took spoil when he was commanded not to take spoil. And it was obviously his, his mind that felt he could go it alone without consulting God. All of this in type speaks of the Adamic curse that is upon every sinner. He thinks he can go it alone confidently and he doesn't need any, any omnipotent help whatsoever. Now, Bephizbosheth was five years old when he became lame from the fall, we said. Our Adamic sin nature manifests itself early on as we are born into that state, and by the time we are children, we will start to manifest an unruly personality if left unchecked. So this then comes under the realm of parental guidance and tutelage as young grow to their maturity. In Genesis 8.21, it is said, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So... Our darling little cherubs as infants grow up and we know that things tick in that need to be curbed and reined in and molded. Considering Mephibosheth's lameness in both feet, it reminds us that man is totally depraved. There's no inherent goodness in man at all. Some are just less sinful than others and therefore by default 
are more pleasant to be around. Have you ever thought of that? By default, some mortals are more pleasant to be around than others. His lameness was the result of a fall and otherwise, and like the early sin of Adam and Eve, we reference that, don't we, as the fall. Mephibosheth had dropped off of David's radar, and he was finally located in a town called Lodabar, a town in Gilead, which was on the northeast side of the Jordan River. According to Strong's, Lodabar is rendered as pastureless, or a place of desolation. Wandering sinners are pastureless. They are without spiritual food. By David's kindness, like Christ, who said, I am the bread of life, he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst, David likewise became the loving kindness and benefactor of Mephibosheth. Now, in Second Samuel 9, verse 9, we are told, that um, then the king called to Ziba, Ziba being an old servant of Saul, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertaineth to Saul and to all his house. So David had fetched Mephibosheth out of his pastureless sojourn and brought him to Jerusalem. So likewise, Christ in all similar manner calls each of us from our far and unique locales, and thus now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Our calling was not through a spark of personal intuitiveness or twinges for the truth, just as David initiated the whole outreach, so has the Son of Man come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that gets back to the principle in Scripture that as I get older, I appreciate more and more in that people are called. We are called. We're told in Romans, those who... Uh, Yahweh foreknew, them he called, which is rendered kaleo, by his word, and those whom he called, he justified, which means to be regarded as righteous, and from that justified pool, those he will glorify. And so that's the process. So in our prayers, we regularly thank God for his calling of even you and me. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, they hid from God. Yahweh's angel came looking for them, looking for them. Romans 3.11 reminds us that there is none that seeketh after God. Thus, the calling process is such a blessing. We develop a love for God because he first loved us, not the other way around. Our commission from God is not to remodel the whole world, um, 
but to help rescue lost souls out of this world. The apostolic model was not for voter registration, urban renewal, energy seminars, or environmental studies, but to bring men out of the world of sin into a proper relationship with God. When Mephibosheth came into the presence of the king, he did obeisance, and then heard his name stated, and he replied, Behold thy servant. This personalized the exchange. The individual for the moment had his time with his master who knew his name. We will have a similar opportunity. When Moses turned aside to the burning bush, he heard, Moses, Moses. Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus. Likewise, he called and he opened the eyes of Mary Magdalene upon his resurrection by calling Mary. Jesus called Paul on the Damascus Road by Saul, Saul. Christ is the great shepherd and he calleth his own sheep by name. The point is that our calling and subsequent covenant relationship is not a sterile and informal relationship. We're not a barcode. We don't have a number. We are known by name. Experience is a wonderful and heartwarming and personal relationship with our master. Now, anticipating such a moment before our judge, we might want to decide now how we want to respond when we're called at the Bema to come up here, brother so-and-so. Behold, your servant isn't a bad start. Here were several benefits and changes that took place in the life of Mephibosheth as a result of his coming out of his lost state into the wondrous pavilion of David. In verse 7, David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thy lands of thy father Saul, and you will eat at my table continually. Now David, start, David started out with fear not, because it was the custom of kings of that day and all through the Middle Ages to bring any family members in and to kill them, to, to prevent any kind of usurpation or treachery within their new regime. For David to seek him out like this usually meant death. In addition, as a paraplegic, Mephibosheth would have had a subsistence existence where he lived. A subsistence existence was his lot. David, in verse 7, quickly put him to ease. Fear not, he said. The example is the same when one comes to Christ and when we will stand before Christ if we are to be judged righteous. 
we are to fear not and to look at that experience as an opportunity to step through a new doorway into a new and greater vista. It gives life where death is expected because of the old relationships and existence. Christ said he was the way, the truth, and the life as was David to provide for Mephibosheth in this account. When a beggarly sinner comes into Yahweh's court through the mediatorship of the greater than David, we may stand being justified by faith, having peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Peace was promised to mankind in John 14, was it not? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So this account with Mephibosheth is a little glimpse, is a little glimpse of what we might anticipate in the kingdom age when we are literally asked to dine at the great king's table. Now in addition, Mephibosheth would become part of a royal family, just as the sinner becomes part of a host of redeemed to be the sons of God. As many as have received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So to eat at, the, at David's table... To observe in David's kingly court, as the regional emissaries would come and go, is to be able to fellowship in the future with the king of kings. This is all that's indicated beginning with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I want to go to Revelation 19 for just a minute, and we'll take a look at that account. Revelation 19, 7 to 10. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they who are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto him, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship. So this then would be a little snippet of what we're seeing happen here. Four times scripture says Mephibosheth would eat at the king's table. This speaks to intense fellowship and all its manifestations. In addition, David said he would restore all the land of the father and that would represent actually all the lands of the grandfather, Saul. 
and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Jesus said in Revelation 3.21, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. So implied here was all of Saul's inheritance and property plus the promise of, per of perpetual and abundant care in David's house. Remember what was discussed in the promises made to David in 2 Samuel, which we considered. Mephibosheth was to become in type and heir according to the promises made to Abraham and to David. And you recall our emphasis upon the word house and all of its various little caveats. This might be summarized in eating at a banquet table like on the overhead a lovely picture, and even, of course, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, this represents the promises made to Abraham and David regarding the promise of David's house, and that would be in the city which faithful Abraham visualized, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 9 and 10, then, in this little segue, states that the returned lands of Saul to Mephibosheth were to be worked and were to bring forth fruit even though in his mortality he was lame. But he had help now, didn't he? As all flesh, and more so, those who are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Mephibosheth was to have a helper, and that helper would be the King David, and it is for us through the mediatorship of Jesus. Mephibosheth was not destined to loaf. He would be managing his operation now through help. So likewise in the kingdom, you recall as Ezekiel 40, verse 3 tells us, and I've used this, really, this example before, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed that the line of woven flax in that example meant the intertwined saints all working and continuing in lofty projects, building vertically throughout the thousand years in the kingdom, various and sundry projects going to and forth from before the throne of Yahweh. Mephibosheth now in his immortality will continue to work and his lameness will be no more. This is a very revealing look into the mind of David, a man after God's own heart. So that ends that little section and it's a nice and lovely account coming off of the, the sadness that we find in the account of Bathsheba. Now, I need to keep pressing I'm going to skip this 
segue for a minute. There's a great picture. And move to the last portion of this class, which is entitled, why does it keep reverting back? So, in ending this class, and because I might have too much material on this, let's keep pressing. David had to live with the bitter fruits of Bathsheba and Uriah's sin from the death of that baby to the end of his reign. He had ruled seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem for a total of 40 years, and it's felt that he died around the age of 70 or 71. Prior to his reign in Hebron, David was on the run from Saul, who pursued him relentlessly. During that time, David made several detours into the Philistine territories, when his faith was again at low ebbs, looking for asylum for his men, looking for help in the world. Just when his life could have blossomed upon his establishment on the throne of Jerusalem, we have the Bathsheba affair, which triggered a host of trials until his deathbed. That affair produced a child which died after a week-long fast, seeking God's relief, but the child died anyway. Next came the rape of David's daughter Tamer, a very lovely daughter by David's eldest son, Amnon. Then Absalom came on the scene in murdering Amnon. Tamer was Absalom's full sister, but Ammon's half-sister. Absalom fled and sought, <clears throat> and sought refuge east of the Jordan in Geshur, where Bathsheba's family lived and where sympathies were not high for David because that's where David's father-in-law lived. After three years, he was allowed to return, resulting from a deal brokered by David's general Ahab, you recall. This led to a usurpation by the arrogant and rebellious Absalom, who despised his father and who was making a power grab for David's throne. You see how these problems just keep coming at him. When his army was put into retreat, he was caught in a tree, we are told, by his long and flowing hair and thrust through with darts or a spear and killed. His hair was his symbol of glory, like Samson. 
He would stroke and comb his long flowing locks and he'd like to ride through the various cities in Israel and he was a real prima donna. The revolt of Absalom had, and his defeat and death further aggravated the relations between Judah and the northern ten tribes of Israel. Exploiting this was Sheba in 2 Samuel 20. He was described as a worthless fellow. The son of Bikira, a Benjaminite, Sheba was eventually cornered up north in Beth Makkah by Joab, and there his head was traded for an end to the siege of that city where he had taken refuge. The next incident was a famine and the restitution demanded by the Gibeonites. That's the story you saw me flipping through. The story of the Gibeonites and Rizpah, the pathetic concubine of Saul who stood ground for several months keeping the ravenous animals and the birds from ravaging the seven remaining sons of Saul where they had been strung up, where they had been slain, was what we had just seen. And that account, by the way, if we don't get to it, is all about keeping covenant. You recall in Joshua 9 that Joshua made a decision to grant the Gibeonites a respite, a safe haven in the corner of Israel when he had been hoodwinked by the fact that they came unto him with worn shoes, torn clothes, and moldy bread. And they asked that, uh, they, that they'd come from afar and might we have refuge in Israel. Um, that they were really Hittites. And from the rendering of the word Gibeonite is a definition of craft and subtlety. So they had learned the art of negotiation and subtlety to displace their having to need to go to war with everybody. And they hoodwinked Joshua who made the decision and it said that he made a league with them which is rendered covenant. And this was really to the dismay of his fellows as it came out. 300 years later, Saul, a Benjaminite, living over near where the Gibeonites had set up their villages, in an unnamed incident, he and his sons went and slaughtered many of the Gibeonites. The, the reason for that slaughter was obvious agitation, and the Gibeonites are an example of those who live close to God's people, perhaps a type of those who live doctrinally close to us, having some similarities. They had learned of covenant keeping. It's high importance of the Israelis, of the Hebrews at that time. They had learned about covenant. Thus they asked for seven, the number of covenant, of Saul's remaining sons to be given to be slain in restitution because you recall there was a famine in the land 
And it had gone on for three years, and it was sorely stressing things. It took David three years to ask of Yahweh, why the famine? What have we done, done wrong? And Yahweh says, because he was angry at Israel. So a little investigation reveals this scenario. A covenant had been broken. And that's the account of the Gibeonites. Covenants and swearing are held very seriously in God's mind's eye. We are very careful to what we swear by. And that's the whole meaning of the Gibeonite episode. It's about keeping covenant and the seriousness of it. Next, there was continued battle with the Philistines where the six-fingered giants of Gath were finally destroyed. All of them, all four of them, thus typing the continued struggles of the men of God against sinful humanity. We wrestle not against principality and powers, do we? As we're told in Ephesians 6.12. But we wrestle against the prince of the power of the air, the prevailing canopy of wickedness in societies. Now in this time frame there was the numbering incident that took place in which David wanted to number all of Israel. You recall he'd come back from his flight east of the Jordan following the usurpation of Absalom and was perhaps a little shaken by it all and the hostility of the ten northern tribes as manifested against him. Anyway, he wanted to know how many men he could rely upon at this time instead of relying once again upon Yahweh. David's faith had cycled into yet another trough. This was a convoluted situation as God had sanctioned numbering in the past, had he not? And that was in Numbers 1, verse 3, and 26, verse 2. But here it was not sanctioned. It was David's initiative out of lack of faith. Even Joab took exception to it. Now, in 2 Samuel 24, 1, we are told, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David to go number the people. Yahweh was angered at the fickle masses who had so easily turned against the Lord's anointed. And he sought an opportunity to reprimand them. That might be something hard to get our minds around. God was angry. He sought an opportunity. This provided a medium for him to express that. Various commentaries feel that the 70,000 men killed in God's judgment were mostly those who had rebelled against David in the past. The same thoughts may be applied to the siege of 70 AD in that the forewarned fled along the rooftops, but those seeking refuge in their own strength 
in their own failing institution of religion at that time were trapped within the system. The numbering was never properly finished. It was interrupted by stern rebuke from God. The prophet Gad was sent to David telling him of the folly in pursuing his numbering emphasis. He set before David three forms of punishment and invited him to make his choice. Not a good scenario. The first choice was he could have three years of famine. Secondly, he could choose three months of military and defeat. Third, the nation could experience three days of pestilence. David agonized over these punishments, as you can only imagine, and he chose the third because he felt he needed to suffer with his people in the three days of pestilence. In the first of three years of famine, as king, he could have rode it out in his, in his palace. There would always be food for the king. In the second one, he could choose three months of military defeat. But that would involve others. He could step back from that. He wanted to share in the judgment, so he took the three days of pestilence. So we have, as the death angel hovered over Jerusalem, Ornan the Jebusite, who still had possession of his threshing floor, and it's interesting how that little niche was granted him, who in his terror, along with others in Jerusalem, saw the death angel hanging over the city, yielded up his last stronghold, and that being his threshing floor possession, and he frantically besought David to buy it for 50 pieces of silver. David and his men quickly prepared an altar, the wood of Ornan's oxen being the sacrifice. Fire flashed down from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice, and that ended the pestilence sent by God. Now the people had been taught then that to turn from the Lord in rebellion against the Lord's anointed was to court death and judgment. And this will happen during the kingdom age, beginning with those rebellious nations that don't go up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles will have rain withheld from them. So there will be pockets of resistance and rebellion within the kingdom age that will have to be dealt with accordingly. David also learned to trust totally in Yahweh and to not trust in men or how many he might be able to count on should he need a sudden draft. This was a lesson that should have been remembered by those who rejected Jesus, the Lord's anointed, in A.D. 70. Hopefully A.D. 70 resulted much introspection. David did not have a good track record, next, as a parent. He was a polygamist, and he had many children from multiple wives resulting in poor parental connection, much jealousy, and household controversy. 
Imagine what it would be like to have two, three, four, five, six, or seven or eight wives, let alone 300 concubines and 700 wives as Solomon did. It probably made sense that he had a harem house somewhere. We should have no greater joy than to have our children walk in truth. This was and should have been David's charge. This is the charge of all of us parents. I submit this, I feel, takes precedence over any external ecclesial and work responsibilities is in the raising of our children. So quickly they grow up and they're gone. Now about this time, the national Israel was suffering under a famine, which was a judgment from God, and this I have already considered in my brief run-through of the Gibeonite situation. So what this brief summary then thus far um, does not say is all of the humble, heartfelt prayer and psalms poured out by David. This then has generated the writing of the psalms. And if you read through them now, hopefully with more of an appreciation for the writer of the Psalms, you'll realize how David was vexed, how his heart poured out his troubles to Yahweh, and how he saw things out of the Psalms that at that point in time, 1000 B.C., was truly unique. Along with the ups and downs of life, we have this great hero, fleeing as a fugitive before Saul, victorious in war, conqueror of the Gentiles round about, and humbled continually by his sins. But in his old age, he was able to put this and all of his poor decisions and folly behind him. He finished his days as a great man of faith. When When he was denied the privilege of building the temple, he did not sink into despair. He gave his complete energies to that task, that being a facilitator and working behind the scenes as much as he was allowed to do. In 2 Chronicles 28, verse 10, we have part of the charge of Solomon that David said, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of this pattern. So David started to inquire of the Lord and to acquire all of the building materials according to the exact specifications of Yahweh. You can only imagine how he would ponder over these plans, visualizing the finished temple. David set men to work preparing stones, brass, iron, gold, and silver for this use. He asked his friend Hiram, the king of Tyre, to assist with supplying cedar wood from Lebanon. We tend to speak of the Temple of Solomon as being Solomon's temple. Yet the tremendous prep work of David 
and the preliminary organization made it really all happen according to plan so that the stones could be assembled without the clank of building. Everything fit. We as living stones aspire to fit in the temple, the spiritual house of Yahweh, do we not? So, what Solomon got from David, in essence, was a big kit. All of the parts and material and the stones were prepared. Solomon got to assemble it. So I'll stop there for today. last morning, brethren. Got my throat lozenges, my glass of water. I'm ready to go. As we move along in our end game and closing remarks, regarding this great man, David. We left off yesterday considering the work that David was doing in the preparation of so many countless materials and the fact that although he had blood in his hands from the standpoint of Yahweh so he could not build this temple, that that was to be left for Solomon to complete he had done such a thorough job in categorizing and in setting aside and in the readying of the building materials that when he handed it over, it was literally like he gave a kit. If you're into building kits or things in your days, modeling and so forth. I used to build model airplanes and, and fly them and all that stuff. But this was a kit literally, that David handed over to Solomon to build. Now, let's go to 1 Chronicles 22 for just a minute. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading from verse 6 to 8. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house under the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel. Now, it's impossible for a mortal man to represent the phases of David as a warrior and then to turn around and to be a prince of peace. So God used David 
to represent the warrior phase of Christ and Solomon to represent his peaceful reign. Jesus, of course, will be both the lion of the tribe of Judah and he'll be, he was at his first advent, the suffering lamb. And that's why, therefore, in Revelation 5, we have the one standing amongst his elders as the lion of the tribe of Judah and as a lamb as if he had been slain. Both come together, of course, in the rule of Christ. Now down in verse 12 to 13, Only the Lord give thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel that thou mayest keep the law of the Lord thy God. Then shalt thou prosper if thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and the ordinance which the Lord God charged Moses with concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage, dread not, nor be dismayed. So in so many prophecies throughout Scripture, you have this if-than qualification. If you do this, then this is the result. Now, behold, in my trouble I have prepared for the house. That use of the word trouble is an interesting little clue that David looked back over his life and he realized that his life was troublesome. It was a struggle for him. It was much hardship, much heartache, much up and down. Now behold, in my trouble I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold and a million talents of silver. So we're talking about and of bronze and iron beyond weight, for it is in abundance. Timber and stone I prepared, and thou mayest add to this. We're talking about billions of dollars in today's monetary scale. Billions of dollars. And as I referenced earlier, that it was felt that much of Solomon's wealth was buried in David's tomb, which the Maccabees tapped out, which Herod became privy to and, and pretty much depleted. So, David in his mind's eye and from receiving the promises in 2 Samuel 7 and his understanding, his understanding of the word house, Hebrew word baith, B-A-Y-T-H, is not only a structure, but it's a structure of progeny, and hence he saw the spiritual Israel that would be built out of that figurative house, and therefore the preparation and hewing of all the stones that he had been, begun preparing, and as Solomon was to later assemble, were all prepared off-site, a lovely type of brethren like us who have been chiseled and shaped with their edges hopefully rounded and knocked off so that when it comes time and after the resurrection, we will all fit into that great spiritual house. Rest assured, there's a chink there with your name on it. We just have to fit. So, 
David then saw this in his mind's eye as he was helping Solomon prepare for the literal temple. He saw Ezekiel's greater temple, a designated house of prayer for all nations and ages, and it was his privilege to help prepare for a temple or a house of prayer for all Israel at that time. Now, the last days of David's life were troubled by long bouts of sickness. And we will go to Psalms 41 for just a minute, and we'll tap into this. As one sister reminded me, the Psalms really were many times musings of David's personal problems, but always with an eye to the Messiah. Psalms 41, verse 3. The Lord shall strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. 6. And if he come to see me, he speaketh... From five, mine enemies speak evil of me. When shall he die and his name perish? And if he come to see me, he speaketh vanity. His heart gathereth iniquity to itself. When he goeth abroad, he telleth it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease, say they, cleaveth closely to him. And now that he lieth down, he shall rise up no more. Now we're looking toward Jesus. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Speaking to Judas, no doubt. So we have David then mindful of these things in his old age and reflecting upon his troubled life. Now, in 1 Kings 1, where we'll go back to, we were told, 1 Kings 1, verse 1, Now David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not get warm. That's a malady of folks as they become more and more elderly. They have a hard time retaining their heat. In the King James Version, this is rendered, he got no heat. So David's servants took matters into their own hands and they did a search of the land and they brought in a lovely young virgin named Abiashag, rendered father of error, and she was intended to become a member of David's harem, but we're told David knew her not. Now, this is an interesting tidbit, because David's eye, and apparently his reputation for lovely women, pursued him all his life, and his servants were, were running off of that false interpretation. They they were running off of that assumption that this would revive David. 
to to bring in the lovely to generate heat, etc. Why not call for his faithful wife Bathsheba? While David was bedridden, however, his first trial was building in that now his oldest son, Adonijah, decided to make a power grab for the throne like his brother Absalom had attempted. So here's David on his deathbed, and it looks like an opportunity for his son. So like his brother, he too was a spoiled and arrogant son. And we're look here in verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So that was apparently the custom, and they would go around Israel through the various hamlets, and it would be much fanfare. And rather than um, a myriad of political speeches ad nausea, he would come through in a chariot with all this fanfare. This is what his brother had done in his campaign. More entertaining than today's political scene, isn't it? The king's court had become concerned, needless to say, as David is in bed, as to who would succeed David. They, too, had just about written him off at this point. Joab, David's commander-in-chief, and Abiathar, the high priest, threw their support into Adonijah, fearing that they would lose out had Solomon come into power. They would be disposed and possibly killed. So we're reading from 1 Kings 1, verse 8 now. But Zadok the priest and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shemei and Rei and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. So he had a core of loyal brethren who stuck with him. Now the fact that Adonijah, needless to say, did not invite Solomon into his celebration fest makes it plain that Adonijah knew the truth about who should really be king. And he was walking in willful rebellion against God's will. Those with Solomon were brethren of principle and of character who were often left out of popularity contests. As Adonijah gained momentum, Bathsheba and Nathan became more frantic, trying to rouse David to action. So this is recorded there in the rest of 1 Kings 1. Now, we have in verse 18 of that chapter, um, And now, behold, Adonijah reigneth, and now, my lord the king, thou knowest it not, (laughs) came the priest telling David, while you're in bed, this is what's going on out there. You need to be mindful of it. He hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance and hath invited all the sons of the king and Abiathar the priest and Joab the captain of the host. But Solomon thy servant hath he not invited. This usurpation is going on right under your nose, David. So, David fires up. 
Adonijah had set his election uh, enclave at Enrogel. And this was a large rock outcropping on the southeast corner of the Jerusalem Wall. And ironically, this was only 100 yards south of where Solomon's gathering was taking place at Gihon. So they were actually within sight and earshot of each other. David mobilized and he set Solomon upon his royal mule along with Zadok, Nathan, and Benaniah, and along with a bodyguard of soldiers, and they made their way to the Gihon meeting place where Solomon's anointing crowd had begun to swell and the celebration had started and it left Adonijah down south realizing what had happened, that he had been bypassed and he began to tremble, needless to say. The trumpet sounded and Adonijah could hear the crowd shouting, May the king live forever. So Solomon's anointing went down. Adonijah fled to Gibeon, and he sought refuge in the tabernacle by holding on to the horns of the altar, looking for God's mercy. He sent a message back, and he said, Let King Solomon swear unto me today that he will not slay his servant with the sword. Solomon sent a reply back to him. If Adonijah will show himself a worthy man, there shall not a hair of him fall to the ground, but if wickedness be found in him, he shall die. His life was spared, but he was destined to return to Jerusalem in shame. So David died, and both he and Solomon were sharing a joint reign before his death. Solomon means peace. David was a man of war. And into the two is built the type that Jesus will fulfill. Both roles, both accomplishments greatly personified and aggrandized. Solomon was able to relieve his father of the more taxing duties of governing the nation, and as a result, David's health improved. He spent his leisure time in dedicated service by reorganizing the worship of the nation and the duties of the priests and Levites. David went on a tear, a revival, got out of bed, he went to work, and it was a marvelous accomplishment and a credit to him. David, you recall, was a, a subject of the mentorship of Samuel. And in turn, David became a mentor to his son Solomon. And we have reference to the fact, I'll only reference 1 Chronicles 9.22, that would substantiate that it appears David was under the tutelage of Samuel off and on as long as Samuel was alive. And there 
This then is a reference and an inference to certain changes that should be made in divine appointments when the time came. From Samuel's directives in 1 Corinthians 23, account of the Levites was taken. They were found to number 38,000. These were divided into 24 overseers, over whom there were estimated and established 24 elders, 6,000 officers and judges, 4,000 porters, 4,000 musicians. The starting age for Levitical service was lowered from age 30 to age 20. Among the Levites, there were men skilled in music, such as Asaph and Heman. They were engaged to lead the people in worship and praise. Interestingly enough, we're told, they were told to prophesy with harps, psalteries, and cymbals as various parts of teachings of Moses and the law and David's psalms were read. So we can imagine how this would dramatize a session or a hearing with the appropriate coming in of music to emphasize certain points. Now notice that the word prophecy was a specific word used to uh, represent the teachings that were going on. The prophecy of the future and of the coming Messiah and of his accomplishments as a lion and a lamb and the temple and the ingredients of this word house were all rich in David's mind and they should be rich in our mind too. David also, um, the singers and players were also divided into 24 orders, we're told in First Chronicles 25. David also placed them under the tutelage of their parents in family groupings. The father educated the sons in the music and the word of the Lord, resulting in solid units of song and truth. So we have this beautiful picture, which will be organized in, and realized in the future, where Temple Mount will generate glorious music that will waft down into the valley of the host city of Jerusalem, now renamed Yahweh Shema. The Lord is up thither. David was determined. David was determined to leave his house in order before his death. He had received from God the plans of the temple that Solomon was to build, and he had taught the intricacies and details to young Solomon. He had provided gatekeepers for the temple, treasurers to manage the wealth, judges and teachers to care for its laws and instructions. He had divided the whole nation into 12 divisions over which he placed 12 princes. And you may read that detail on your own in First Chronicles from chapters 23 up to chapters 29. This types the organization of the greater than David's rule where nothing but nothing will be left to chance. 
When Jesus sets up his kingdom, he will elevate responsible brethren to make them officers and princes of his realm to be looked up to and obeyed by the peoples. He that overcometh, we're told, to him will I give power over the nations. And this then we anticipate as the overhead would suggest perhaps one of the patriarchs instructing the members of the order of Melchizedek or Jesus himself speaking from the porch of the great temple. Well done, thou good and faithful servants. Be thou over X number of cities, countries, municipalities, institutions, temple activities, education, law enforcement, the poor, medical and disease control, agriculture, energy pollution, sacrificial animals, centers of learning, administration at every level, hydrology, all types of engineering necessities and projects, but there will be no lawyers or Canaanites or anything that worketh a lie. And you recall from the word Canaanite that it means traitors. Traitors. Traitors in apostate religion. Traitors in any adversity. David also instructed young Solomon in 1 Kings 2 about various necessary housekeeping requirements. Verse 2, 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. Now I'll return to that in just a second. But skipping on down, we have various names referenced in verse 5. Moreover, thou knowest also what Joab the son of Zerulah did to me. We have a kindness to be shown, but show kindness unto the sons of Barzillai. But now in eight, and behold, thou hast with thee Shemei the son of Gerir, who cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went to Mahadaman. Now, regarding this little sequence here, it's for our it's for our consideration, I submit. Joab was a ruthless and fearsome commander of David's host. He was a good general when you were fighting the enemy. But he was also a treacherous opportunist who would only breed trouble for Solomon. David had said to him in this sequence, let not his gray head go down to the grave in peace. He had murdered Abner and Amasa. So here we have advice to young Solomon as he starts and was to start his new reign. There needed to be housekeeping done to prevent adversity, subterfuge, and undermining in this new order. And David knew that Solomon was young 
and yet inexperienced. This I'm injecting because I feel it is a bona fide type of what the Lord Jesus will need to do in, on the front end of establishing his kingdom. As Solomon began his purge, Joab, in 1 Kings 2 here, verse 28, sought refuge by fleeing to the tabernacle, holding on to the horns of the altar. And verse 27, so Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli. So there is a purge here going on. And this is why on the overhead I have the cluster of grapes in the presence of the sickle. So I want your thought to go to Revelation 14, the reaping of the vine of the earth, and we have the sickles at work there in the harvest, the vintage, and the clusters of the vine. Now the vine represents, which is after the banding of the tree in Daniel 4, banded with iron and brass, putting up secondary growth throughout the centuries, becoming a lower profile vine type rather than the magnificent tree representing Babylon in its different phases and influences, Babylon the Great in the Apocalypse, and of course, heavily laden with the apostate religion of the Roman Catholic Church, which we understand to be the papacy and her influence. So I submit to you that under the clusters reaping of the vine, which represents aggregates and pockets of hostility. We're talking about aggregates and pockets of people who would be a detriment to the establishment and maintenance of the kingdom. And this, then, is what we have here in 1 Kings 2. We have David telling Solomon, weed these people out on the front end of the kingdom. Solomon quickly... Uh, regarding the type, and this is another example of Adonijah. He continued his scheming, and he sought to take Abishag, the, the maiden that was first offered to David here when he was in bed. He, he sought to take Abishag to his wife, and that was encouraged by Bathsheba, which demonstrates to me her lack of discernment which prevailed all the way through. Solomon quickly deduced that this marriage, had it been allowed with Abishag to the oldest son now, Adonijah, would have injected him into the royal household with a, a woman given to David, firstly. It would have put him in the royal household and given him a position of recognition that would only fester and generate future trouble. Benaniah once more was sent to execute Adonijah, we're told, the same day. He's eliminated. 
judgment came swiftly and firmly. This is a lesson, and it teaches us that this is what will happen in the kingdom age. Swift judgment. There will no, be, there will no longer be waiting 8 to 12 months for a trial to begin. Criminals won't languish on death row for 15 years, enjoying multiple petitions, allowed to dither and wring their hands and email and gather sympathy for their situation. Judgment will be just, and it will be carried out quickly. Likewise, in this chapter, David marked Shimei, who had cursed him and thrown stones at him, you recall, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem. Shimei followed David's caravan along the base of the Mount of Olives, cursing him and throwing rocks at him. Total disregard, manifesting total public disgust. Yet when David returned, he came fawning back, pleading for his life. Solomon had guaranteed him in Jerusalem that he would be allowed to come back and that he wouldn't kill him at that time. But Solomon had quarantined him in Jerusalem, and it was upon death that he ever leave. So three years later, when um, several of his servants ran away, he blissfully went after him without any regard to his commitment and to the warning that Solomon had made. Solomon found out, and upon investigation, ordered Benaniah to execute him. So we read in 1 Kings 2, verse 46, So the king commanded Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, who went out and fell upon him, that he died. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So these executions and purgings, we might say, quieted Solomon's soul. And it would send a message right up front as to how this administration was going to be run. And this is a model I have added, I believe, for the kingdom age. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, will do the same thing. As he consolidates his earthly reign, the treacherous kings, politicians, warmongers, the papists, the George Soros types who survived the trauma of pestilence and fire will be rooted out. This is all summarized for you again in Revelation 14, the reaping of the sickles. And its clusters outside the city, even unto the handlers of the horse bridles or the manipulators from afar. Now, this all may sound a little bloodthirsty, but in Christ's new regime, these types cannot be tolerated to burrow into his administration and to fester and to seethe and to cause subterfuge. Now, lastly in closing, we have already considered the various people. Now regarding Solomon, David said firstly to him in 1 Kings 2, I go the way of all the earth, 
Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his ordinances and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and wherever thou turnest thyself. That the Lord may continue his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. But he said, Be thyself strong and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord. This then is what would make a healthy rule for young Solomon. David wanted to have Solomon and his charge to Solomon to manifest great character. Now on the overhead I've added some things that the aspects of be thou strong and show thyself a man meant to be a masculine leader. Homosexuality was known at this time at 1000 BC. We witness writings and things from the Greek culture. And if any of you have ever visited the ruins of Pompeii, you'll know all about that. Be strong also implies to be strong mentally. And Samuel, Dem and, and Samuel demonstrated that by his ability to fulfill David's charge in what he must do to his adversaries. And of course, he needed to be strong spiritually. Cling tenaciously to the law and the word of God that was available to them at that time. Keep the charge of the Lord. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes. Reading from 2 Samuel 22, which is regarded as David's song. From verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Verse 7, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and he did hear my voice. My cry did enter into his ears. 29, For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and Lamp, interestingly enough in its rendering, is progeny. Let your light shine before the world. That These words are progeny. For thou art my lamp. God is my strength and power, and he maketh my way perfect. The terms used by David then are a piling up of keeping all of the intricacies of the word of God, that thou may prosper. Nothing has changed. We will prosper, brethren, if we keep the word of God. Not as the Olsteins promised prosperity, which is totally material, but we are rich in what we have been blessed with and what we know. Reading from reading from Second Samuel now thirty five. Uh, 
2 Samuel, excuse me, 23. And I am reading the first five verses. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, He who ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springeth out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my <clears throat> salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. So in this, David saw the coming Christ, and he takes stock of all of his blessings. What a blessing indeed it is to be able to look into his life and to study his ups and downs, but the steadfastness and the anchorage of his heart. So, as we end this portion, and as many of us come up on our allotted three score and ten years, and pass that, as we mature in the truth, let it not once be said of any of us, he got no heat. Now, I've got a few minutes left, and and timing is always tricky when you're giving a class. So I had worked up a short, I call it a short, um, uh, in case I needed a little something. So let's go to 2 Samuel 21 for just a minute. And we have the account of the Gibeonites. So this is an interesting little segue, and it again has some pithy meanings and considerations. We're told in 2 Samuel 21, verse 1, that there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. Now we can ask ourselves, did David inquire of the Lord at the front end of those three years? Or after the grinding famine lasted for three years, did he inquire of the Lord at the end of the three years? I'm betting that it was well into the famine. And the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Now, this is a lesson and a reminder of the memory of Yahweh. If we 
think we can commit presumptuous sins and, and carelessly and recklessly trudge through our life without any kind of a comeuppance in God's mind, then we're fooling ourselves. There had apparently been an unrecorded slaughter by um, Saul's house and involving his sons years ago during the reign of Saul. And in verse 2, And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Well, the truth of the matter was that this enclave of the Gibeonites, who were, who were really Hittite remnants back in the days of Joshua and Joshua 9, were living in their own little enclave within the confines of the nation of Israel. And they were technically to be rooted out under Joshua's campaigns. The Lord was clearly angry as this was unresolved business which Davis, David learned about in his inquiry to the Lord when he got about it. But David did not inquire as to how to resolve it. Now that's an interesting point. David didn't inquire as to how to resolve this. And that's something all of us need to remember in our prayers. When we're beset with problems and troubles, we need to ask him, how would you resolve this? Give me some clues. Instruct me. So David acquiesced quickly to the Gibeonites who demanded that seven young men, members of the house of Saul, to be delivered to them so that they might slay them for this injustice. I would think there would be a loyalty there. This is kind of hard to get your mind around how David so quickly could acquiesce and hand over seven men from the house of Saul. Now, the Gibeonites in their early form were actually Hivites, and they were the original inhabitants of the land. And they occupied the region of Gibeah. And in Joshua 1.9, you recall, they were successful in deluding Joshua. You know, they came in with tattered clothes, worn shoes, moldy bread. And they came in, uh, you know, we've just arrived. Might we seek shelter and might we be allowed to live in your land, we want to become and join to you. Now, Joshua at that time did not inquire of God as to what should he do. But he made a decision by himself to grant them um, a safe harbor. And he didn't eradicate them as he was commanded to do. And at the end of Joshua 9, um, he didn't apparently consult with his brethren because they were angry at Joshua. But they went away and they allowed this thing to go down because Joshua had made a league, rendered a covenant with them. The once powerful nation, the 
Hivites were now in decline, and they had reverted to craft and diplomacy rather than to warfare. Moses had been commanded to destroy them and eradicate them because of their ungodly ways, but that was not done under Joshua. The name of their god, Baal Berith, or Lord of the Covenant, confirms their non-warlike character and their choice of stealth and arbitration. So they had learned to arbitrate their way to safe havens rather than to have to mount a military front. In David's day, they are still living then in the land and would be regarded as a blunderous thorn in Israel's side. Today, the same benevolent mistake made to grant the Palestinians a portion of the Gaza Strip, to grant them a portion in the East Bank, under Moshe Dayan, to grant the Arabs access to Temple Mount, where they have their mosque and the Dome of the Rock, all represents blunders in Israel's shepherding of the nation of Israel. Apparently Saul and his sons had made a murderous raid, we're told. It's noted that Saul's ancestors dwelt in Gibeon, and this early association may well have generated much friction which sparked the uprising and murder of many Gibeonites by Saul and his sons. In any case, no one in Israel had protested at the cruelty of the king because they regarded Saul's raid as, no doubt, good riddance. Now, in 2 Samuel 21, verse 2, the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. The Gibeonites wanted vengeance, and they knew their rights, and they knew that they could extract it. Now, how come? Isn't this the case of so many people who are granted favors in our society, and the next thing you know, they turn around and they're demanding their rights. They're demanding more and more and more. The Gibeonites wanted vengeance because in their close proximity, living in the flank of Israel for the next 300 years, they learned about Yahweh. You might say, through osmosis, through shoulder rubbing. They knew how strong the concept of a covenant was. And they knew enough about covenant that they asked for seven sons that they might, that they might kill. Seven, the number of covenant. So this was what was going on here. Why their close proximity would have familiarized them with Yahweh and the many ramifications of the law they knew their rights. <laughs> so what are the lessons? Back in Joshua 9, it states, after they had made a covenant, the word is Strong's word uh, 1285. This is rendered a compact, a league, a covenant, as in cutting. So they had a bona fide covenant with the nation of Israel. 
Now, the lesson teaches that the severity and the binding obligations of ever swearing an oath or covenant and thinking it's of little importance in God's eyes. Now, 300 years later, it affected Saul and his sons who recklessly broke the covenant made by Joshua, which he made himself without consulting God. Likewise, David consented to the Gibeonites' vengeful request without consulting with God. For all we know, and now with Joshua long dead, Yahweh might have authorized David to eradicate the Gibeonites at this time. And if Yahweh sanctioned that, then it could have gone down. And these seven wouldn't have had to be slain. But the seven also were the sons of Saul. And thus we know it was God's way of cleansing or purging the remaining house of Saul. Mephibosheth was accepted. He was lame. There's no way he could have participated in this. And he was elevated, you recall, to dine at David's table. Mephibosheth would not have been involved. So the stealth and craft of the Gibeonites is what got them to this point. 2 Timothy 3.5 They had a form of godliness, but denying the power of it from such turn away. Now the seven bodies were left hanging in the open fields near Gilbert. Gibeah, until the famine broke and the rains came. So this further attests to the Gibeonites still as they understood covenant and asked for seven. During that time, the poor, pathetic Rizpah, one of Saul's concubines, refused to leave the bodies of her sons. She was clothed in sackcloth. She guarded the bodies in the blazing heat driving off the birds and the wild animals. When David was told of how this situation went down and played out, he realized that this was a situation that was ripe to spark rebellion and anger and rage from his subjects. So to show that he bore no ill will against the house of Saul, he brought the bones of Saul and Jonathan from Gabes Gilead and with great honor and fanfare, he buried them in the sepulcher of Kish, the father of Saul. So in conclusion, we know that God brought about the famine because a covenant had been recklessly broken, which had been made almost 300 years earlier. And we also know that after the seven sons were offered up, the rains were returned. So we may conclude that this appeased Yahweh as well. The, the, the work of the Gibeonites appeased God. This incident drives home the seriousness of our ever swearing and not following through. This also drives home the serious keeping of covenant in God's eyes. This is also seen as another lesson in sin management. Deal with it quickly and decisively Otherwise, you have to deal with it later. So this then would 
bring to an end our thoughts this week on selected lessons from the life of David. Thank you.